Now you know, maybe you don't, but I hope you do, why uh, John Chrysostom had the book of Romans read to him once a week. If you want to have your life radically changed to the glory of God and for your own joy, I challenge you to read the eighth chapter of Romans once a day for 30 days and see if whether or not the Holy Spirit will change your heart. I, I guarantee it will. The Holy Spirit will use his word to transform your soul, to tra transform your life. A few years back, Sherry and I were at the Yakima Airport for some reason, and a pilot there of a single-engine plane offered to take us up and give us a tour of the Yakima Valley. And we thought, hey, that's kind of, it was just out of the blue. And so we were assuming this guy had a pilot's license, and we got in this plane, and he acted like it was his, and we, he took off, and off we went. And uh, once we got up into the sky, he asked me if I wanted to fly the plane. To which immediately Sherry said, that's not a good idea. <laughs> but anyways, he, he let me take control of the plane. And I flew out. Mind you, this is, I've never flown a plane in my life. Uh, I, I flew out over Tannum Ridge towards White Swan, swung over White Swan south towards Zilla, and then came up uh, the valley and came over Tannum Ridge again and lined up the plane on the east side of the runway and was coming into the runway. And as we were getting close, he began to give me all sorts of instructions about airspeed, altitude, correct approach, etc. at which every breath I became uh, more panicked, as did Sherry. I don't know if she had passed out by them or not. I'm not certain. But thankfully, he took back control of the plane about a mile out and landed it for me. The point is, in order to properly land a plane, you have to have a lot of things in the right place. Altitude, approach, direction, airspeed, etc. if you're going to land safely. You can land unsafely a lot of ways, but if you want to land safely, you've got to have all these things in view. And it's the same way when you come to Romans chapter 8. If you want to understand the, the content, the power, the purpose of the greatest chapter ever written, you have to have some things in place. You have to make the right approach. You have to understand the arguments that have gone on before, which is why I've taken some effort here to help you see all the things leading up to landing the Romans 8 plane. For example, you must understand the depth of your sin and your need for the Savior. And Paul clearly lays this out in the first three chapters. You have no doubt by the time you get to the end of chapter 3 that you're a sinner in need of salvation. None whatsoever. And then when you get th reading through chapters 3 and 4, you start to understand the nature of God and his promises concerning forgiveness and salvation. Those things begin to clear up for you. You, you must understand how we are united to Christ, who is our only hope. And this is seen in chapters 5 and 6. And you understand your ongoing fight with sin, which is clearly revealed in chapters 6 and 7. And so all these come together so that you will understand chapter 8. And there is no doubt chapter 8 is the most monumental chapter in all of Scripture. Friends, last week I began to lay this out for you, admittedly, though briefly, 
We discovered through the example of Abraham in chapter 4 that the promise of God's forgiveness, the promise of his salvation is based on faith and is dependent upon Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, he said therefore because he just got through speaking all through chapter 4 of the faith of Abraham. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. How? Through the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 5, Paul explains how this works. He says in verses 8 and 9, but God shows us his love um, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's how God saves us. And then continuing in chapter 5, Paul tells us that in the same way that Adam brought sin and death into the human race, Jesus, who he calls the second Adam, brings grace, righteousness, and life to the human race. So Adam brings sin, Jesus brings life and forgiveness. He says this in chapter, seven, or chapter 5, verse 17. For if, because of one man's trespass, that is Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Adam brought destruction, Jesus brings redemption and reconciliation. By this time in the study of Romans, it becomes clear that if we sinners ever expect to be acceptable to God, which is the riddle of Scripture, right? How can sinful people be acceptable to a holy God? That's the riddle. Well, Romans solves the riddle. And by this time in Romans, chapter 5, it's become really clear that if we ever expect to be acceptable to God, we must have a special relationship with Jesus Christ. Outside of him, there is no hope. Paul makes abundantly clear. Chapters 5 and 6 describe this important relationship as a vital union with Christ. A vital union with Christ. Listen to how Paul describes this union in chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. We were buried there, therefore, with him by baptism. Now, baptism here isn't water baptism. We need to, unfortunately... We can't see the original language here, but baptism here is not speaking about water baptism. He's talking about identification with, association with Jesus, a, a submersion into Christ. That's why I used the word the way he did. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. There is a necessary, vital union with Jesus Christ that we must have if we're going to have our sins forgiven. And as he was describing this vital union with Jesus Christ, Paul also said that this union affects how we think and live. This union with Christ that saves us also changes us. Look what he says in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who 
have been baptized, that's immersion, that association with, not water baptism, but who have been associated into Christ or identified with Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his death. Don't you realize you died with Christ? That, that union, that, that relationship with Christ is so vital that when he died, you died. He died for your sins, you died to your sins. The amount of ink that has been used to describe this struggle with sin could fill an ocean. And one of the better books on this struggle and how to win this struggle with sin is called Holiness by J.C. Ryle, and I highly recommend it to you. Holiness by J.C. Ryle. So Paul spends the greater part of chapters 6 and 7 discussing the challenge of living the Christian life. Have you discovered how challenging it is to live for Christ? How difficult it is to be faithful and, and consistent and holy day to day with all the pressures that you face in your home and at work and in this community? It's a challenge. Wouldn't it be great to be able to experience a complete and utter change to the point that we're automatically like Jesus the minute you pray to receive him as your Lord and Savior. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Well, God didn't plan it that way because it's not like that, is it? It's not like that way at all. The Christian life is a great struggle, a daily struggle against sin. And throughout chapter 6, based on our union with Christ, Paul argues that we are in a fight for purity, a fight for holiness, but the outcome is certain. You don't have to wonder whether or not you're going to win this fight. You just have to fight. Just show up. And the Holy Spirit will, as we'll see, will be there to fight with you and for you. In chapter 8, verse 37, it says that we, in fact, will conquer. But let's look at chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. And I want you to see the heart of his argument or the explanation as to why this is such a problem. He says, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Okay, friends, we're no longer under the power of sin is what Paul's saying. Stop living like it. Then in chapter seven, we have this amazing and yet little bit confusing chapter. It's Paul's personal testimony, chapter seven. He, he describes to his readers in this chapter the extent of the struggle, and he gives his personal testimony so, so that we will realize, his readers will realize, how big of a struggle it is. If the Apostle Paul struggled with holiness, we're going to struggle with holiness. This is the point of chapter 7. Now, I want you to turn to Romans 7, and I'm going to read for you, starting in verse 15, and so you can see Paul's struggles, so you can see how real this fight is. He says in verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions. <laughs> right there, I, I can relate to him. And, and usually we would write it like this in our journal. What's the matter with me? Right? This is what we say to our spouses. This is what we say to ourselves looking in the mirror. What is the matter with me? Continuing, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very things I hate. You ever written that in your journal? <laughs> or ever said that in a confession? I don't know why I did that. I'm just so stupid, you know. That, that's, this is our testimony, not just Paul's. But this is the Apostle Paul speaking. 
He goes, verse 16, now if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Me, me, me. <clears throat> so verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do is what I keep doing. Now, if, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. And then get down to verse 24, and he, said, he just gets tired of explaining how much of a struggle it is. And he just says this in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who's going to save me from this body of death? He goes, this is unbelievably difficult, the Apostle Paul said. That's his personal testimony on the matter. Alexander White, uh, a pastor of days gone by, said this to his congregation when he was preaching through Romans. He says, you will never get out of the seventh chapter of Romans while I'm your pastor. That didn't mean he was going to preach every sermon from Romans 7. He, mean, he meant that as long as you're here, I'm going to remind you of the fight. You can never give up fighting, Christian friend, is what Alexander White said, is what Paul said, is what I'm saying. We'll never, ever get to that place, this side of glory, where we can put down the weapons and say, I've won the battle. You're going to fight till the day you die. The beautiful transition, though, at the end of chapter 7 is worth making a point of. Look at it, verse 25. He just asked the question, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Look at what he says. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's who. God will save me from this body of sin. God is going to solve my sin problem. God is going to give me victory in my battle, in my fight. And then he spends all of Romans chapter 8 explaining how God does this. All right? Now we're ready to climb what some have called the Mount Everest of sanctification in Scripture. Romans 8. The great 8. Um, I believe the greatest chapter in all the Bible. This chapter shows us the only way to conquer sin. The only path to Christ-likeness. I was reading an article the other day about the history of climbing Mount Everest. And it seems that there are multiple ways to the top of that mountain. Now, unlike Everest, there is only one way to climb the mountain of sanctification, and that is the route laid out in detail in Romans chapter 8. So let's stay within the metaphor and strap on our crampons and grab our ropes and ice axes and get after this massive mountain of sanctification together, okay? Bible's open to Romans 8 from now till it's over, okay? As Paul just said, who's going to solve the problem, his sin problem? It's God. That's who. Every member of the Trinity is involved in your sanctification, just as every member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are involved in your justification. So every member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is involved in your sanctification, becoming like Jesus. All three are involved. And so I'm calling this Trinitarian sanctification. 
We must have Father, Son, and Spirit involved in our lives if we're ever going to become like Jesus. He begins this chapter by saying, therefore, and like I've told you before, whenever you come across that word in Scripture, you should always ask, what is therefore, therefore? Why is he saying therefore? He wants you to think back through everything he has just said in the first seven chapters, which I've very briefly laid out for you. He, he wants us to consider our sin, consider the, the goodness of God in Christ, consider faith, consider the struggle. Therefore, therefore, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The first thing I want to point out to you is the name given to us in this verse. Which name is it? Christ Jesus is the name. And so we begin by seeing that justification is in the Son. This sentence, by the way, is dripping with importance. I'm going to try to highlight a few words to help you see the importance of this verse. And the first thing that you're going to notice is that all of this is resting on, dependent on, the person of Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ, not those who do good works, not those who, who go to church, not those who are born into the right families, not those who live wherever. No, it's those who are in Christ Jesus. Everything in our justification and sanctification is dependent upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. The next word that jumps out, us, out at us is this word condemnation. It's the word we like to run from, isn't it, as humans? We don't want to hear about condemnation. And here Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation. It's a very strong word that carries the idea of a damning sentence. In fact, it was used as a death sentence in Paul's day. And so it would be like saying, there is now no damning death sentence hanging over your head if you're in Christ Jesus. That's not there anymore. Paul wants to emphasize this colossal truth. And so he begins this sentence in the original language with the word no. In our translation, it's, it's four or five words in, but in the Greek language, if they wanted to emphasize a particular word or concept, they moved it to the front of the sentence. And so it's like this. No, there is not condemnation for you if you're in Jesus. And it could even be no, ho, ho, there is no condemnation for you who are in Jesus Christ. That's the emphasis Paul wants us to consider. It, it, it is so important he, in fact, uses a double negative, no, and condemnation. What's that mean? It's positive. What, what that means is, is it's an emphatic way of saying that you have, in fact, been justified by Jesus Christ. But it makes a sharper edge when he says, no condemnation. There are only two classifications of people in the world. We know this. You're either in Christ and not under condemnation, or you are not in Christ and under condemnation. Paul's making that clear here. Jesus made it clear to Nicodemus in John 3. If you are in union with Christ, then you're justified, and there is no condemnation hanging over your head, no death sentence. That's gone. This is an important concept, friends, to have firmly established in your mind. You cannot live the Christian life unless you understand this concept. We can't go through life 
wondering whether or not we have been cleared of all of our sins. I wonder if Jesus died for that sin. I wonder if that's possible. I mean, that was really a bad one. No, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We can't go be wandering from day to day wondering whether or not we've been accepted by God. I wonder if Jesus still likes me. Does God love me? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have to have this in your brain. We can't live with the question whether or not we're going to see Jesus when we die. That has to be settled, and it's settled in Christ Jesus, which is the point of verse 1. Now there is no condemnation. We're now free to live joyfully and confidently with God because he has placed all of our sins that would have condemned us on his son, Jesus Christ. We are no longer on a performance treadmill trying to impress God, trying to gain his favor, trying to gain his acceptance. We are accepted because we are in Christ, his beloved son. And because we're in Christ, if we were condemned, Christ would have to be condemned. The only way condemnation can come to those who are in Christ is if he's condemned and the son will never be condemned. No, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Now think with me over one more word. Now. Do you see that in your first verse? There is now, therefore, no condemnation. What's that mean? Well, it means that at one point we were under the condemnation. At one point we were under a death sentence, right? We're all born there. We're all born sinners. And sinners are condemned the minute they're born. This, this means that before now we were under this death, death sentence, but now we're not. Now there's a, a radical shift here in Paul's mind and in doctrine and theology. Condemnation, Christ, no condemnation. Jesus is at the center of this picture. But also the Holy Spirit comes into view. Look at verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And so there are so many benefits that come with our union with Christ. And one of the greatest is the Holy Spirit. What a wonderful benefit that is in knowing Christ. In verse 2, Paul is revisiting a doctrine that he began back in Romans chapter 6, verse 7. It says this, For one who has died has been set free from sin. How are we set free from sin? Paul's telling us right here in verse 2. Look what it says. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The Holy Spirit has been involved. What an important truth to grasp. The Holy Spirit here in, in Romans chapter 8 is referred to 19 times in the first 27 verses. Do you think he's an important part of your sanctification? Yes. He was used 19 times in the first 27 verses as Paul was describing our transformation in Christ. This is the only way any of us can live the Christian life. He has to indwell us and empower us to live like Jesus did. Only the Holy Spirit can reproduce the life of Christ in us. Nothing else can. Notice that the sentence, chapter, uh, chapter five, verse, or 8, verse 2, begins with the word for. It's a signal word, meaning that he's about to explain 
this justification in Christ. He's about to explain how we can be sanctified in the Holy Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Paul is beginning this explanation by telling us that the Holy Spirit is critical to this transformation into Christ-likeness. Without him, there is no transformation into Christ-likeness. You need him. And I want, you to, I want you to hear something, point something out just for, for clarity's sake. The law here of the spirit of truth and spirit of life, rather, and the law of sin and death is not the Mosaic law. It's not the Ten Commandments. It's not God's moral law. It's not that. It's a dictating principle. It's a regulating principle. It's like the law of gravity. That's important if you're going to understand this. And some translations recognize this difference, and so they use a lowercase l in this sentence, but an uppercase L in verses 3 and 4, because those are a reference to God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, and so forth. But here, it's a regulating principle, a guiding principle that Paul is referring to, a governing power. And so the spirit of life here is referring to the Holy Spirit of life, and the Holy Spirit gives life because he is life. This is something that is inherent in his nature. He's a life giver. It's the Holy Spirit who enlivens us and enables us to live the Christian life. This is a new principle. This is something that wasn't available to those, bef those before Christ. We've been liberated by the Holy Spirit from the governing principle of law and sin and death. It, it does not have dominion over us anymore. Our depravity had affected every part of our lives before we knew Christ, right? That was the the law of sin and death, the governing principle of depravity. But when the Holy Spirit comes along and we are converted, we're regenerated, everything changes. If we're going to live the Christian life now, we must be released from the old law and then be overwhelmed with this new law of spirit and life. That law used to dominate us, but now we're liberated from that law by the Holy Spirit. And that happens at the moment of regeneration. Everything changes at that moment. When God declared no condemnation or stamped not guilty on your life, we experience instant freedom from that law, that governing principle. In fact, that's what the word now means in verse 1. Things are different now. The regulating principle of sin and death must be broken if we're going to live this Christian life. The Holy Spirit comes in, takes over, and things change. And I want you to know... Based on the truths found in this verse, we can know that there is no lag time between regeneration and the beginning of sanctification. Some people say, well, I became a Christian, I prayed the prayer at 8, but didn't get serious about God until I was 28. Poor understanding. That's not how it works. Once you are changed by the Holy Spirit, once you are saved by Jesus, everything changes starting at that moment. And the moment is important. We may not be able to remember the exact moment that this happened, but that moment for all of us who are in Christ happened. And from that moment on, we begin to pursue the things of God. We, be, we start being concerned with our life of godliness or our lack of holiness, like Paul described in chapter 7. So there's not a lag that people try to describe. That's a wrong understanding of this vital doctrine. Notice, verse 2 confirms this. 
It says that the law of spirit, the law of the spirit of life, what's the next word? Has set you free. That's a past tense verb. It happened in that moment when he came in and saved your soul. At that moment, he set up shop and began transforming your life into the likeness of Jesus Christ. It has happened. There's that break in your life at that moment. The doctrine of justification and doctrine of sanctification are inseparable. There is now a new governing principle in us, and this principle is the power of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. Notice that he mentions Jesus Christ in both verses, 1 and 2. Now let's look at the Father's role. Remember, we're looking at a Trinitarian sanctification. Justification in the Son, liberation in the Spirit, condemnation by the Father. You say, that doesn't sound too good, condemnation by the Father. Well, look at what the Father's condemning in verses 3 and 4. Is he condemning us? No, because he said there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. What's the Father condemning in, in verse 3 and 4? He's condemning sin. Look at this. It's, it's not a negative word, but here in these two verses, condemnation is a wonderfully positive term. The Father joins in our sanctification by condemning the sin in us, putting to death the sin in every believer. And here the law is referring to the Mosaic law, the moral law of God, not a governing principle, but the law of God. Listen, for God has done what the law, that is the Mosaic law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not by the flesh but by the spirit. <laughs> this is... This is really also very important to know. The law has authority to tell us what to do, but doesn't give us the power to do it, right? We know right and wrong because of the law. But the law doesn't give us the power to do right. It just alerts us to the fact that we're sinners. But God comes along, the Father, and condemns sin in us, puts it to death, puts it away. So the weakness is not in the law, but in the sinner. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to fulfill the requirements of the law, which we do once we've come to Christ. We become obedient people. We become loving. We care about one another more. We love Jesus. We love God. We love his word. We love his people. And so the Holy Spirit is inserted into the life of every believer and gives us the power to live just like Jesus did. God stepped in and made all this possible, sending his son, sending his spirit to accomplish his purposes in his people. And notice that he sent his son, it says in verse three, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Did Jesus ever sin? No. Was he human? Yes. So he was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. He looked a lot like you and me, but he never sinned anything like you and me. He never sinned, but he came as a human, which required a human mother and a divine father, the likeness of sinful flesh. The father sent the son in the likeness of sinful flesh in order, it says, look at the end of that verse, to deal with sin. Look at it, verse 3. 
sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. What did he, he sent his son for sin. What does that mean? He sent his son to deal with sin. He sent his son to take care of your sin problem. Not just the penalty that you owe for sin, but the power to conquer sin. God did this by sending his son. The father is involved in our sanctification. Not just our justification, but the father's involved in our sanctification. He sent the son, he sent the spirit for sin. So that we can appropriately deal with sin by the work of Christ on Calvary by the presence of the Holy Spirit. We are free from it. That doesn't, mean we, that doesn't mean we don't battle it, as Paul said in Romans 7, but ultimately sin has no power over us who are in Christ. We are no longer condemned. Our sin is condemned by the Father. What a wonderful blessing. What a good truth that is. So the requirement of the law remains. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, God does not say, oh, it's okay, you don't have to worry about the law, just do whatever you want. Does anybody think that? If you do, we can talk afterwards, but that is not what goes on in the Christian life. The law remains a requirement for us. We still have to obey God. <laughs> That's what it says in verse 4. In order that, God did these things in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. We still have to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. How's that happen? Positionally, so that you can be justified by faith, positionally, God sees you as he sees Jesus Christ. When he looks at you, he sees Jesus. That's a positional theological reality. He sees Jesus. But he also gives you the Holy Spirit. So you start acting like Jesus. You fulfill, you actually fulfill the requirements of the law the longer you walk with Christ. Jesus actually fulfills them and grants that perfection to us so that we can be justified by faith. But then once we are justified, the Holy Spirit enters and begins to change us slowly but surely into the likeness of Christ so that we actually become obedient from the heart. We actually love one another. We actually serve one another. We, we actually obey God. Whereas before we never did and didn't care. So the words that I think will help cement these things into your mind are the following. And, and these describe our, our walk with Christ, our walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. First is intentionally, intentionally. Five words that describe our walk with the Spirit. It must be an intentional walk. We have to daily live with the awareness of our need that we must rely on the Holy Spirit. We must always keep before us this reality that we are dependent on God, Father, Son, and Spirit to be able to not only be accepted by the Father, but also to please Him with our life. It's an intentional thing that must come across our minds daily. And the way that I would encourage you to do this is to wake up with that thought on your mind. Wake up with that prayer on your lips. Today, I'm gonna walk with Jesus. Today, I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to walk away from sin. The second word is continually. The second word that describes our walk with the Spirit is continually. We must do this intentionally and continually. Wouldn't it be great if you could take a vacation from sin? I'm going to go to Idaho. Not a lot of sin up there in the north. 
and I'm just going to be up there on a vacation from sin. Uh, I, I would go there a lot, if not move there. But here's the problem I've discovered with trying to take a vacation from sin. Wherever I go, I'm there. Weirdest thing. And when I'm there, I bring sin with me. As do you. And so this has to be a continual watch. This, this lighthouse has to be continually sending out its beam into our heart. You are dependent on the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, humbly, we must acknowledge in humility that without the Spirit, there is no hope of success. Do you really think that you can live the Christian life on your own power, your own strength? <laughs> think again, Christian friend. The reason he was sent to indwell you was because you can't do it without him. Humbly acknowledge that to everyone you run into. Acknowledge it to God, acknowledge it to your children, acknowledge it to your spouse, acknowledge it to your co-workers. I'm in need of the Holy Spirit. And when you see me not acting like Jesus, it's because I've decided to try it myself. And then the fourth is obediently. Intentionally, continually, humbly, and fourthly, obediently. We must obediently walk with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who inspired the authors of Scripture. The Holy Spirit is behind the writing of Scripture. The Holy Spirit is the one who laid out the one another's in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit is the one who thinks it's a good idea to forgive your neighbors. The Holy Spirit is the one we obey. And so we must obediently follow the Holy Spirit. And, and, and the way to I guess describe that besides just a, a legalistic obedience is this needs to flow out of our heart joyfully, voluntarily, and enthusiastically. That's what I mean by obediently following the Holy Spirit. Pursue joy in obedience. Pursue, pursue it voluntarily. Don't, don't, don't try to be, or like we do with our kids, if you don't clean up your room, you're going to get it. That's not the relationship we want with the Holy Spirit, the Father, or the Son. We want to obey Him joyfully, voluntarily, and enthusiastically, expecting great reward. And then finally, prayerfully. Following the Holy Spirit requires a prayerful, a prayerful commitment, constantly pleading with God for help, constantly acknowledging to Him your need, Constantly confessing those times when you've blown it. Coming in humility and prayerfully into the presence of God. Intentionally, continually, humbly, obediently, and prayerfully. I have a long ways to go in this sermon, um, as I do in Romans 8. But uh, I'm going to stop here and encourage you to come back next week as we finish out verses 5 through 9. One thing I realized at the, um, no, about Wednesday of this past week, getting through Romans 8 is almost on the same level of miracle in six weeks as being converted. Okay? Almost as close as that. So if we, by chance, get through 
Romans 8 in the next six weeks, you'll know God was at work, okay? For sure. And I don't know what I was thinking, but I'm always biting off more than I can chew. And uh, whether it's with food, diets, and exercise, or study of Romans. Um, but we're going to trust the Lord and keep moving forward. I said this to the first service, and I had a lady come up to me after the first service and said, well, just keep talking. And, and so I know some of you want to go home. But uh, it's been a great day together. We've seen the blessings, firsthand blessings, haven't we, and the children that came with their parents. Uh, we've heard from the scriptures. We've, we've experienced the ministry of the Holy Spirit as we've sat here. And now I'm going to send you home with this blessing in my prayer. Pray with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you with overflowing hearts of joy, knowing that you have saved us from our sins. You have provided a means by which we can know for sure, without any question, that we are not facing a death sentence because of Christ Jesus and his work for us. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. Thank you, Father and Son, for sending your Spirit um, to not only um, save our souls, but begin to transform our lives so that we become more and more like Jesus, that we look more and more like Jesus to everyone around us. Continue this work in us, Father. Continue uh, blessing us Son with the Spirit's work. Continue, Holy Spirit, applying the will of the Father and the Son in our lives so that we turn out just like Jesus one day. Um, help us to love one another. Help us to commit our lives to your word. Help us, Father, Son, and Spirit, to accomplish the purposes you have for us. And I pray this in the threefold name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.